Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always, Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1941 film Citizen Kane. So the story follows a man named Charles Foster Kane. At the very beginning of the movie, he's on his deathbed. He looks at a snow globe, mutters the word rosebud, and then dies. And we learn through a newsreel, News on the March, that he was a very wealthy media mogul, a newspaper magnate, and he had all these other investments. Yeah. A reporter is hired to find, find out what that meaning of rosebud was. And to do that, he interviews various people who knew him. So though his first uh, source of information is a manuscript autobiography by a man named Thatcher, who was a wealthy banker because... Cain first came into this fortune because his parents were living on this land that was vastly untapped for mining. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to make the money. It was going into his name when he became older, but until he became of age, this man named Thatcher was supposed to look after him. And Thatcher, you see Thatcher first meet him as a child. We learn that his mother is the one that's been making the decision. His father is against it, very but the f- reason you can figure out sort of the reason why the mother makes that decision is because you can tell the father is somewhat abusive towards Kane. And she says, you know, I'm going to give him a good whooping after he pushes back Mr. Thatcher. And she says, well, that's the reason you'll never why I'm moving you because you're never going to be able to hit him again. Mm-hmm. And so we and we see how at that time with the money that, you know, Thatcher tells you, oh, you could do money, you could do shipping, you could do real estate. But he's. Kane says, I want to take over the newspaper, The Inquirer. And The Inquirer, because Kane hates Thatcher, so he's always using his paper to go after all of Thatcher's in, uh, interests constantly. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a yellow journalist in that time when yellow journalism was being very big. And that is where we sort of leave at Thatcher's story. And then he goes and first meets um, his sort of manager, Mr. Bernstein. Through Bernstein, we figure out Kane's rise to power how he becomes this big newspaper magnet. He becomes friends with a man named Leland. He gets involved in the Spanish-American War. It's one that sort of, you know, gets people involved and gets us involved in that war. And then he uh, sort of follows his, you know, the, his first marriage to um, this woman who's the niece to the president. Mm-hmm. We sort of see that marriage dissolve later on. And then he, because he's had also just pursues affair with a woman named Susan Alexander, and then so that we meet through that we also meet his friend he uh, Charles Leyland. Through the, Leyland we find you know, the affair with Susan Alexander, which costs him a shot at the governorship, which basically ruins his political career. Mm-hmm. And then also he decides to marry this woman he's having an affair with, Susan Alexander. He makes her become this opera star, but she's not good at all. And then uh, Leland's the critic for the paper, the critic for the music, uh, the opera, and he writes a scathing review. But Foster Kane lets him print it, and he actually finishes it for him. Finishes it for him, and then still fires him anyway, but gives him money. And then he, uh, Leland rips up the notice, and then with the money but gives him this uh this code of ethics that kane was using to print in his newspaper that he always said he would follow by yeah back in the early days yes and then that through that we see our last uh story through susan alexander his second wife 
And that is when Cain became extremely reclusive. He built Xanadu. He was collecting all these statues and had all these animals and very rarely left. And we saw the crumbling of the marriage. And she leaves him. And as she leaves him, he tears apart the her room. And then he looks at a snow globe and says, Rosebud. And then he leaves. And then so it flashes back to the present. And then never he so the reporter still doesn't find out what Rosebud is, and he sort of realizes I don't know if this really you can find a man by just one thing. I don't if Rosebud was something he wanted and he couldn't have, but who knows if that would be a better person or not. And as we see them leave, they're going through all the massive amount of stuff he has, and somebody's throwing a sled into an incinerator, thinking it's just trash. Lo and behold, it says Rosebud. This was the sled we saw him very early on as a, he had as a kid, and so that's saying. That is the last time he was truly happy. Yes. So that is the plot. Of that Citizen is an Kane. excellent synopsis, and uh, yeah. Unfortunately, for those that haven't seen the film, you just did a good job spoiling the entire film. Yeah. But it was uh, spoiled for me before I even watched it. <laughs> I knew what Rosebud was. So. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's great. It's a life story of uh, Charles Foster Kane, uh, told through the point of view of. Four people, five people that um, with which he was involved over the course of his life. And you're right, it does start out with his mother making this heart-wrenching decision. Um, and I forget the details. I mean, she inherits money because there was some sort of debt owed her and her husband um, concerning their boarding house. And she realizes, wow, th this gives me the opportunity to uh, do something for Charles that literally was not on the horizon as far as a, a potential for giving him a better life. And her idea of giving him a better life is actually giving him away to Thatcher. And uh, uh, you see this, this has an impact on the kid, even, even in the, even in the scene with Thatcher, he doesn't want to go. Um, the father's kind of an interesting figure. I and mean, when we do get that impression that he, uh, you know, from what, the Agnes Moorhead character says, the mother, and you won't be able to reach him anymore. Uh, we get the impression that he is abusive from that statement, but from his demeanor and from the way that Charles is responding to him, I don't think he's that frightened of him. So it raises an interesting question whether she made the correct choice. Would his life have been better, more fulfilling? Um, uh, if he had stayed, if they had kept the money and, you know, built up their property there and stayed. Um, that's one of the big questions of this movie, because you, you see um, through the course of his life, he never gets over this. He never gets over this. And he puts a lot of blame on this ability, inability to control his own life on Thatcher and generalizing from the case of Thatcher on the rich and the powerful. And then over the course of that life, he becomes one of the rich and powerful. And you, you see uh, uh, him trying literally to control every aspect of his life. Because I think it's, a, it's kind of a reaction formation to his total lack of control as a child over his destiny. Um, and he's also trying, and this is no spoiler too, because I knew this about this film uh, before I saw it. He's trying to fill a void. Um, and I think the void is uh, 
a, a lack of connection or love throughout his life. And he does it various ways. He, he does it by, I guess, literally trying, well, not quite literally, but trying in some way or another to purchase the affections of those around him. And the general public, as a politician, he wants, he wants that adoration and that love. Uh, uh, primarily as a result of his own munificence. Another way he tries to fill that void is by substituting material possessions for that kind of connection with others. So, as a lot of people do, um, and this is going to sound weird after I say it, but as a lot of people do, um, he starts hoarding things. He can afford to buy whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. So he starts hoarding things. And you do have, at several points in the film, these powerful images of the growing collection. Even early on, you know, there were, he's not become the recluse and he's starting his political career. You see Jed Leland going through the uh, statues that have been sent back. Yes. That's relatively on, early on. So that hole was already there early on when he first uh, uh, took over the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and then by the end of the movie, like you said, he's got, he, he has built his own private lair, more than a lair, realm is the better word for it, Xanadu, and just piles upon piles of these um, possessions. Um, so he's, he's trying to make up for that lack in those two ways. And it's interesting, um, it brought to mind in terms of philosophical connections, it, it brought to mind things that uh, Aristotle has to say about virtue and character formation and happiness, eudaimonia, uh, fulfill the life, and uh, um, easy, as it were, traps that you can fall into that lead you astray in that regard, uh, lead you into something other than a fulfilled life, something that will ultimately be unfulfilling and unhappy. And uh, uh, he has a neat way of describing um, how that might happen. He says, uh, you know, for each possible uh, emotional reaction or possible action you can take to externals outside of you, there is a spectrum of possibilities with regard to how you can respond to it. On the one side would be a, a, a very uh, minimal and deficient response. And on the other side is an excessive and kind of over-the-top response. Uh, classic examples he gives is uh, the virtue of courage. It's in the middle between an excess and a deficiency. What is courage? It's essentially the ability to stand up to dangerous situations despite the danger, especially when you have good reasons to do so. And he says uh, people that have a deficiency in that regard will typically not stand up to those dangerous situations and, and and back off from them. That's cowardice, right? Mm -hmm. On the uh, other extreme is the person that uh, is uh, gives no regard to the danger and jumps into dangerous situations all the time, willy-nilly, without good reason. That person he calls brash. The one in the middle knows when to deal with dangerous situations, how to do it properly, and uh, uh, with... Uh, uh, what ends are justify such dangers, right? Or uh, dealing with such dangers. 
so that's a classic example he gives. Um, with Cain, uh, he's reacting on a similar sort. He, he's he's his reaction is on a, a similar sort of spectrum with regard to uh, affections of others and uh, your reaction to uh, the elements of your life that you can or cannot control. In regard to that latter one, he tries to control too much. He tries to control things you cannot possibly control. And he doesn't have the wisdom to see that he can't, he can't do it. Aristotle has a, a lot to say with that, about that. So do the Stoics, another uh, ancient Greek uh, school of philosophy. Uh, they say a, a big part of what uh, allows you to live that, ultimately, that fulfilled uh, and happy life is keeping squarely in front of your mind at all times what you are able to control and what you are not able to control and to temper your emotional reactions and your expectations accordingly. He doesn't do that. He spends his entire life trying to control the American population through his political uh, um, campaigns, everybody that works around him. Uh, he likes to exercise that control, even though, even, even uh, uh, with regard to the people closest to him. Uh, Susan Alexander is the worst case in point, I think. I mean, he, he forces her into an extended and very humiliating career as an opera quote diva i think they even put it in quotes in the film diva. quote singer singer that's what Elaine yeah. says like they and put the quotes on the singer you really feel for her because she is being humiliated on a nightly basis on stage um but even with jed leland he does the same thing he he, he uh, uh um as it were controls his career uh by firing him right mm. so it's a great character study i think this is my personal take on it as a, a an object lesson in Aristotelian ethics. Yeah. And anybody who does any kind of research on this movie knows that this Charles Foster Kane is based on William Randolph Hearst. And not only that, but we talked about earlier, the character of Susan Alexander is based on his lifetime mistress, Marion Davies, who he had start as a film career. And it gets into the ethics of just why both Wells, who wrote, starred, and direct, co-wrote, starred, and directed, and the screenwriter, Herman J. Mankiewicz, chose to go after the most powerful man in America who, if you pissed off, would make sure to ruin your career, and he had the tools to do that. Yeah. I, I always kind of asked myself, you know, Wells came out of this, you know, cocky kid who was who made the infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. He challenged not only that, but if you read, he had a theater career. He did an all-black cast of Macbeth in the 30s, which was extremely groundbreaking for his time. He did a controversial political musical for theater called The Cradle of Rock. He was already making waves, and he decided, I'm going to go after William Randolph Hearst for my movie. And if you read, Hearst knew what was going on. He suppressed the release of this film, so it was a did not do well at the box office. He had his m newspapers pan the movie, and he and it really affected Wells's filmmaking career. So I, I always just kind of asked myself: Is you knew the danger? Why? I mean, it's a you know obviously it's a classic, an all time great, but 
you really played with fire with this one. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, that, like you said, that it was not the first time that he played with fire. Uh, and I think that is a personality trait of Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of Orson Welles in Charles Foster Kane, I think. And um, uh, I think to his credit, he's a little bit self-conscious of that. If you see his whole career, he will actually um, show a, a good amount of self-awareness in that regard when he's interviewed and things like that. And he loves the limelight. Oh, my oh, goodness, this man loves the limelight. Favorite um, on the late night talk shows. Oh yeah, and and uh, like John Huston, we mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of episodes back. He's that same guy. He's in love with his voice, and he he knows his talent. He knows his talent, and he he likes that adoration that comes from showing the talent. Um, so I think that's why he did it. He's just not afraid of the challenge. Like you and, said that brash person who just doesn't regard us go headstrong. Yeah. Exactly. So he, he uh, he's not quite as far over on that end of the spectrum as Charles Foster Kane is, but he's farther over in that direction than somebody that would hit the mean uh, with that regard. Um, but yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of that character in there, and there's a lot of self promotion in, in Orson Welles. It's kind of interesting when you look at his early radio career. Um, the earliest episodes of the Mercury Theater were actually called First Person Singular, and they were done in 37 and 38. Um, usually at the beginning of those episodes, sometimes at the end of them. Um, and what they would do in this show, for those that don't know, is they would take famous works of literature and turn them into one-hour radio dramas. Um, at any rate, uh, at the beginning or at the end of each one of these episodes, there would be this, as it were, copy about this bright, young, new talent on the Broadway, the New York stage. Uh, you, you think it was written by somebody at some paper somewhere talking about this twenty brash 24-year-old um, uh, uh, theatrical superstar who also did a hell of a lot of radio work including the march of time he actually did radio work on the march of time i have a several of these episodes from 37 38 and you can hear orson wells in there this is uncredited work by the way so that's where he got the idea of creating this uh newsreel to start this film which was clearly based on the march of time newsreels and the radio spots but anyway this copy sounds like it's written by a third person about this amazing new talent, Orson Welles. Guess who wrote that copy? Orson Welles. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Typical Welles. But you even see, because he had absolute control on this movie, because RKO said, this guy's brilliant. We'll let him do what he wants. It'll be a big hit. But you see, after that, because he went after Hearst, and Hearst suppressed the box office return, even though even then it got great reviews, but it was just it didn't make money, and it hurt RKO, the rest of his career was plagued with not having that control. Yes. Have it, not having control over the final cut of the movie. Touch of Evil is probably the most famous. Some A lot of his movies weren't even finished. I mean, two years ago, The Other Side of the Wind, one of his last films in the 70s, just got released nearly 40 years after he's finished filming it. He's always been plagued with these problems, and once again, it comes down to you're going after, at that time, the yeah. most powerful man in America. Yeah. Uh, again, to that brashness. Um, uh, 
Another example, I think, is the Magnificent Ambersons, if I recall correctly. They hired somebody else to create a happy ending to that thing. Yeah, vastly uh, edited. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's a shame. And, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, you know, you can't make, as I think you rightly point out, you can't make it out that the studios are completely and only the, the only bad guys in that regard. He brought it on himself. Um, and it's a shame because you can see in the volume of his radio work, which is actually much more extensive than his film work, when he had this complete control over um, what he did, which he never, it was never taken away from him, even after the War of the Worlds broadcast, which caused a great deal of consternation. Um, There's that, that funny little line, speaking of War of the Worlds and movies, says, well, don't believe everything you hear on the radio. Yeah, yeah. That one little throwaway line. Yeah. Um, um, but he was left largely alone with the Mercury Theater in the Campbell Playhouse, which was the uh, name of the the franchise after the War of the Worlds broadcast got him fame and a sponsor, Campbell Suits. Um, but he had he had total creative control over those episodes. And what's really remarkable is the fact that his mastery of the aural uh, art form is as high as his mastery of cinematic art in his films, even where he didn't have direct control uh, of every aspect of the film, right? He still had control over the cinematography. And you can clearly see that in, Orson, in yeah. Citizen Kane. It's just fantastic. Yeah. The use of lights and shadows, different angles than you normally oh, see. Worked with Greg Tolan, the DP. Yeah, yeah. Just, just wonderful. Well, he did that with um, the, the, the world of sound on radio. And unfortunately, a lot of the copies circulating of these shows are not great audio quality. But I would highly recommend going to the University of Indiana archives of uh, uh, Wells' work. And they have nothing but HQ versions of these radio shows. And you see that same level of mastery there with wonderful stories. Um, one that really sticks out to my mind is uh, Hell on Ice. Um, he, did a, he did a radio adaptation of the, the story of the Jeanette um, Naval Academy plug here. Um, the opening of the book um, has a description of a monument that is still at the Naval Academy uh, 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 graveyard. Graveyard, is that the right word? Cemetery. Cemetery, so edit that out. The, great, the Naval Academy Cemetery, it's a large cross with ice, ice hanging on, over the, um, That's That appears at the beginning of that uh, book. Well, he does a fantastic job with sound, in that, in his radio adaptation of that story, really conveying the gravity of these the situation these men from the Jeanette were mm -hmm. were in, uh, he, and that's not the only example. There are yeah. several episodes of that show that just show that amazing mastery of the uh, media that he was using, um, and it, it's a shame. I, I think it. His own brashness did ultimately work uh, as a countervailing force, not allowing him to have that kind of freedom with subsequent films. Yeah, and the thing is, we've been talking all this time about Orson Welles because it's Citizen Kane, but 
The reason why we're talking about this movie this week, and some of you may have already guessed if you've been keeping up with the news, is because there's a new Netflix film out called Mank, which is about Herman J. Mankiewicz and his writing of the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And that is one of the biggest controversies of all time in movies, of who really worked, wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And it comes down to really who is truly the author of a movie, I think. Because when we think of movies, you just, like if I to say to you, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're not, even if you say Harrison Ford or Karen Allen, you're going to, the name immediately going in mind is Spielberg. You say Star Wars, um, A New Hope, the first one, you're going to say George Lucas. I say 2001, you say Stanley Kubrick, so on and so forth. But with this movie, it, it, especially if I, you haven't seen it yet, but I have seen Mank, and it sort of argues that Mank deserves every bit as much of credit for that movie as Citizen, as um, Orson Welles. He wrote, wrote the screenplay, and the movie, it says, he was friends with both Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst. And the, one of the things they talk about in that movie is one of the flashbacks it goes to as he's working on the script is the 1934 California governor election between Upton Sinclair and I forget the guy who won, but he was a Republican candidate. It's clear to see that Oldman, or that Herman J. Mankiewicz, is a supporter of Upton Sinclair, but the studio heads, mainly Louis B. Mayer, and William Randolph Hearst are on the side of the governor, and they decry Upton Sinclair as a communist and a socialist, and they don't want anything to do with him. And he, I'm not going to get too much into the movie, yeah. but he decries um, Hearst at the end. He gets drunk at a party and says, Upton Sinclair said you were, at a time, you were once the great person who would lead the socialist revolution in... America, and now you're decrying this man and doing everything to suppress his election prospects. And you can almost see that he, this is making him the Charles Leyland to the Charles Foster Kane and William yeah. Randolph Hearst. And like I said, Wells didn't have that friendship or didn't spend time at, to have to go all the dinner parties with those two. And it comes down to is Herman Mankiewicz more responsible for this story than Wells is? Yeah, and it's a good question. I don't know the answer to. Um, but I think you can ask that that kind of question for the body of Wells's work because he did rely to a great extent on his cinematographers, for instance, in setting up the skeleton of a film. But even going back again to the radio work, um, if you listen to interviews with other people that worked with him, for instance, Howard Koch on um, uh, the War of the Worlds uh, script, um, most of that scripting was left up to Howard Koch. Um, Wells, as was typical with him, because he had too many projects going on at the same time, would show up at the very last minute, often the day of the broadcast, look at the script and go, wait a minute, you need to change this, that, and the other thing. Sometimes he wouldn't, but very often yeah. he did. Um, so I think if you, got, if you cornered the man and said, look, is it all you or not? I think he would have to admit it wasn't because it was a collaborative work. And there's an interesting story from Agnes Moorhead, who appeared in Citizen Kane as the mother of Kane, um, saying that uh, a, a lot of the people that would be on hand for the radio shows would actually end up putting two cents in on, on how, to, how, to, how to do a scene 
again, the day of the broadcast and sometimes during a broadcast very quietly so that you, you couldn't hear it over the mic because these were live broadcasts. And uh, uh, very much a collaborative effort, not only by, from, uh, from the point of view of the writers and the director, Mr. Wells, but the cast and the people behind the cast kind of running things or doing sound effects and so forth. John Houseman's another case like this. Uh, um, again, a, a, an interesting philosophical question in terms of uh, authorship. Mm -hmm. And this, yeah. this comes up time and again in all kinds of works of art, but typically in theatrical works of art where you do have ensemble uh, ensembles of people working on the project, it becomes very difficult and it's probably not fair to uh, attribute it to only one person's creative genius. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, Reach episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Music